shirts with white spots. Uh, and of course, democracy, the reason I chose that was for the 40th anniversary of the Formosa incident, which oh. is an important moment in okay. Taiwan's path to democracy. The second time, of course, was the week after the elections. So that was also an example of Taiwan's We're democracy. very democratic here in Taiwan. Exactly. Good word to repeat. Good word to repeat. <laughs> exactly. We may do it again. It's totally not against the rules. <laughs> All right. So the next question is, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the graphics that you see in our show. If it's a full screen graphic, like you see in Taiwan Explained, hashtag Taiwan, uh, who in Taiwan, where in Taiwan, pretty much every segment we do, if it's a full screen graphic, we probably did that graphic ourselves. And we did it in PowerPoint. What's this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? In the 1980s, there was a thriving piece of Taiwan in the heart of Buenos Aires. This was the Barrio Chino, or Chinatown a part of the city where several waves of immigrants from Taiwan came together, opening shops and businesses and sending their children to Chinese language schools on the weekends. This neighborhood is the subject of the 2016 documentary Arribeños by Argentine filmmaker Marcos Rodriguez. When I ask the members of RTI's Spanish service team whether they've seen this film before, they all say no. But really, most of them don't have to. The story told in the film is their story the story of Taiwanese people transplanting themselves to South America and starting new lives there. But this 2016 film doesn't tell the whole story, and now Rodriguez is making a sequel, this time focused on the choice most of these immigrants later made to return back home to Taiwan. Though we've shared an office with our Spanish-speaking colleagues for many years, before I'd heard about these two films, I'd never really appreciated just how many of them hold Argentine passports. And this got me curious. We hear all the time about Taiwanese Americans, Canadians, Australians, and so forth, but much less about Taiwanese people who've made the move to other parts of the world. What in particular attracted them to Argentina? Why did most of those who went decide to come back? And just how Argentine or Taiwanese do those who grew up in the Barrio Chino of Buenos Aires feel today? To find out, I put some of these questions to Spanish service head Andrea Wong, who was just six years old when her family decided to make the move to South America. Last week, she told us about learning Spanish from scratch and learning to navigate a new culture. This week, she's back with us to talk about Taiwanese immigrants' identity, her own search for her Taiwanese roots, and the ties that continue to connect people like her to their adopted homeland even years after leaving. Throughout Andrea's childhood in the Argentina of the 1980s and 90s, she says first-generation immigrants like herself never really felt completely Argentine, even after mastering Spanish and acquiring Argentine citizenship. She had friends from all different backgrounds, of course, immigrant and non-immigrant, but there were things that always set her a bit apart. In high school, for instance, she never was able to join her classmates at the Saturday evening dance parties that were then popular with local teens. 
This was partly because she wasn't that interested, but also because conservatism ran deep among Taiwanese immigrants at the time. And she says it's unlikely her parents would have let her go anyway. If you didn't go to these dances, you were a bit out of the loop socially speaking. It made truly fitting in a bit difficult. Her occasional family trips to Taiwan seemed to be a bit more comfortable though, because she was with family, and unlike in Argentina, she didn't stand out. Still, she felt rootless, just as foreign in Taiwan as she was in Argentina. It's a feeling she's since discovered that's common among those of her background and age. This rootlessness did have a few perks now and then. She says, for instance, that this was a time when imported goods were less common than they are today in Argentina, and pretty much everything was still made in Taiwan. This gave her access to all kinds of things that couldn't be found in Buenos Aires, and she was always the one in class with the coolest hair accessories and colored pens. Still, a feeling of being caught between two worlds was just a state of being that she and others like her just had to live with. It was the 1990s when Taiwan's immigrant community in Argentina started to split up. Some decided to emigrate a second time, and Andrea still has many old friends who now live in the U.S. or Canada. At the same time, others, like her own family, packed up and headed back to Taiwan. They'd all come to Argentina looking for opportunity, and many had found it. But now other opportunities started popping up, and many pursued them. Study abroad was an especially common reason for leaving. When it came time for the first and second generation to start going to university, many opted to study outside the country. Andrea says that after several years abroad, many of these people found themselves with new friend groups and new opportunities for work. People often decided to stay on in their new homes rather than return to South America. By the time of Argentina's 2002 economic crisis, most had already left. The Taiwanese community had once numbered 50,000 to 60,000. Today, only around a fifth of that number remains in Argentina. These days, newer immigrants from China itself are the main group in Chinatown, and they have largely taken up the grocery store trade that their Taiwanese forebears had pioneered. Andrea didn't leave quite as early as most did. She had a job in Argentina and was fairly happy with her situation. But over time, it became more and more clear that she felt alienated from her Taiwanese roots. She came back to Taiwan, and after a while, she simply grew used to the place. After 25 years of life in Argentina, this became her home. But it was never a simple departure for anyone. Many people had taken Argentine citizenship and spent the better part of their lives there. Andrea is still in contact with many of her old friends, both those who've stayed in Argentina and those who've moved on. The internet makes it easy to keep in touch, and though they may live on opposite sides of the earth, everyone in her group still knows what everyone else is up to. Her 
Her professional life has kept her in touch with Argentina, too. As it turns out, RTI Spanish service has an especially big community of listeners there. Andrea says a lot of this is down to the distinctive Argentine accent that she and other Argentine colleagues bring to the microphone. It's a very distinctive way of speaking, and for those from Argentina, hearing this accent makes announcers feel more familiar. Since a good half of our Spanish team have an Argentine background, that means that our own office is often filled with the sounds and special vocabulary of this dialect. And so, just a few months ago, as the Southern Hemisphere was blooming with spring, Andrea led a delegation from our station to Argentina for our first-ever Southern Hemisphere fan meetup and the founding of our first Argentine Listeners Club. As a child, she would come home to Taiwan, and now, as an adult, she's able to go home to Argentina. She says that though her family is no longer in the country, she still misses Buenos Aires very much. It's a sentiment many of our other Taiwanese-Argentine colleagues share, a kind of nostalgic feeling that Marcos Rodriguez pulls out in his documentaries. With so much lingering attachment, it's probably not surprising that some of these returnees are now raising their own Taiwan-born children bilingually in Chinese and Spanish. Though Andrea's own children were not born in Argentina and will grow up here, she still makes an effort to speak Spanish to them, even if they may never be fluent or master the subtleties of the Argentine accent. In any case, there will always be room for Argentine treats like alfajores and dulce de leche in their home. She says her hope is to give the next generation the advantage of a multilingual upbringing and to expand the breadth of their imaginations from one end of the world all the way to the other. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Stroke of Light, a portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers. Hello and welcome back to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. Last week, we looked at a very upsetting piece of artwork called The Slaughtered Ox. And technically speaking, there isn't just one version of it. There have been several paintings of the slaughtered ox in history. 
The most well-known version of the painting was made in 1965 by highly regarded Dutch painter Rembrandt. In the decades and centuries that followed, several other painters, including followers and admirers of Rembrandt, as well as his successors, have also painted their own version of the slaughtered ox. This comes as a bit of a surprise since the subject matter of the painting really is anything but pleasant. And it shows exactly what the name suggests. A full display of the dead carcass of an ox that's sliced open in the middle. And we, the viewers, can get a full frontal view of everything that's inside. And that include the blood and gore, the innards, the bones, and everything else you can think of. In the past few weeks, we've been covering a solo exhibition that's called Homage to the Masters by Taiwanese artist Shi Jinhua. Shi has chosen to pay homage to a number of artists by recreating some of their favorite artworks. And in the process of doing so, he tries to retrace their steps and explore new themes and possibilities along the way within a subject matter that's been tried before. So when it comes to why he specifically chose the slaughter ox, which is a rather upsetting subject matter for one of the paintings, Shuri explains to me that the themes behind the artwork really draws his attention. He says that the carcass of the slaughtered ox allows artists like Rembrandt to explore the theme of death and all the energy that comes with it. He says when Rembrandt painted the very first version of this subject matter in the 1600s, there was no other paintings like this. At the time, oil painters mostly focused on very conventional subject matters, such as landscapes, houses, and people. After all, making an oil painting is a commissioned endeavor for most painters, and the patrons who have the means to pay for a painter to make a painting Chances are that many of those paintings ended up being portraits of themselves, their wives, their misses, and their houses. That explains a rather lack of variety in oil paintings in many, many hundred years. So when Rembrandt first chose to focus his attention on such a subject matter, it was a first in many, many ways. And it also, to a larger extent, opened up the possibility for other painters to explore what we now consider as unconventional themes, subject matters that are less than quote-unquote perfect or happy or pleasant. In Rembrandt's painting, we see him putting a lot of attention to how the light falls only on the center of the carcass and how it wraps around the subject matter and gradually falls away as the rest of the frame is engulfed in shadows. Like I said earlier, the same subject matter was painted by several other painters, including Su Ten, in the following years. Now, when Mr. Shi Jinhua painted his version of the Slaughter Ox, it is a lot more expressive and less realistic in, as far as aesthetics is concerned. The way he made his paintings is very similar to that of Van Gogh, in that making it look like the real thing was never his goal. In fact, he doesn't hide any of the brushstrokes. We can see where they start, where they end, and we, as a result, get a pretty clear glimpse of the artist's train of thoughts. Where exactly in the frame did he start making the painting, and what are the energy that he's trying to explore and convey to us? 
his colors are very vibrant and he has specifically put an emphasis on green and red so we see the blood dripping we see the engulfing shadows and we see the energy the power that comes with the act that killed the ox to say that mr shi made his own version of the slaughter ox is not exactly accurate in my mind a better way of describing his artistic endeavor is that he chose a landmark in terms of subject matters and oil paintings and he explored the themes that have long fascinated him thank you very much for listening to stroke of light next week we're going to wrap up this mini series that covers shu's solo exhibition homage to the masters I'm Jake Chen and I look forward to talking to you then. Together already, it's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to the feast. This is Ellen Chu, and this is Andrew Ryan. Hello, how are you doing, Ellen Chu? That's good. Yeah. So you know who's not doing fine, Ellen Chu? Ooh. Chinese restaurants and even Asian restaurants around the world. Yes. They're taking a big hit because of this coronavirus outbreak. I think so. Anything related to China, I think. Or even Asia in or general. Asia in general is getting a big hit. We have some statistics here. We want to tell you Shark Fin House, a well-known Cantonese dim sum restaurant in Melbourne, Australia, mm-hmm. closed recently after reporting an 80% drop in business. Also, a Vietnamese restaurant, Bia Hoi, also in Melbourne, has seen an 80% drop in business. Mm-hmm. And there's even a new hashtag to help Asian businesses in Australia. It says, I will eat with you. Yeah. So I don't think that's a good slogan. I think you come up with a better one, Ellen Chu. Really? Yeah, what is it? It's like... Uh, <laughs> we are here for you. We are here for you. That's terrible, too. <laughs> <laughs> we are here for you. I think it needs to have the word eat in there. Really? Yeah. But we will eat with you because they don't want Asian people eating with them. Well, that's the point, I think. I will eat with you. It's like it's like people who support the people from China and from oh. Asia saying, I will eat with you, even though like I'm not from there or I look different. Okay. At any rate, well, anyway. we'll workshop that. How's okay, that? Okay, sure. And also, in New York's Chinatown, which is 7,500 miles, about 12,000 kilometers away from Wuhan, they're also seeing empty tables and a huge cut in profits. There's even one shop called Yinji Changfen, which is the New York branch of the popular Guangzhou restaurant chain. It was packed when it opened in September, and then business dropped by 40%. But the thing is, I think, you know, the, the Chinese people living abroad is actually creating the fear for the foreigners, too. Because when I was back in the state, 
for Chinese New Year, and mm-hmm. that was when the coronavirus started to break out mm. in China and a little bit in Taiwan. So you see these Asian people, mm. Chinese people, going to all the pharmacies to buy masks mm. uh, and also like sanitizers and all these kind of things, and they are buying it in bulks and buying it like completely to make all the stores out of stock. Mm. So you know, when I was there, I was purchasing this um, uh, cough medicine mm. for Ryan, okay, because he had like, you know, drippy nose. You know, when he got to the states, it was kind of allergy, so he was a little bit, you know, coughing. But it wasn't too serious. So I was buying the cough drop for him, and then when I was paying, the lady hopped back, "Are you sick?" <laughs> and I'm just like, "No, no. I'm not sick." <laughs> And she's like, "Oh, okay." I'm like, "Are you sick?" Because <laughs> you know, I said, "What's wrong?" And then she's like, "You know, it's just scary that these Asian and Chinese people just came into the store and bought all the sanitizer and all the mask. So it must be something going on out there." Mm, I think people、yeah. are very afraid. So、yes. in today's program, we are going to be having some. Noodles from Wuhan. Now the noodles themselves are not from Wuhan, but it is a their most famous dish from Wuhan. Okay. We looked into it and we found a restaurant here in Taipei, and we're gonna go and eat it. So we're gonna say we are not afraid of Wuhan. We're gonna say I will eat with you. <laughs> I will eat with you. Okay. That's right. Yes, I definitely eat with you, Andrew. Thanks, Alan Chu. I'll eat with you too. Okay. So let's have a look at today's menu. In our first course, we'll tell you a little bit about the origins of hot, dry noodles. That's right. In our second course, we're going to head to a local restaurant here in Taipei to sample a bowl of these noodles. And in our third and final course, we're going to ask the people at the restaurant, Xiao Huo Fan, about the secret to creating the perfect bowl of hot, dry noodles and how business has been doing during the break. The、wow. outbreak, yeah.、And、I think I think everybody's getting hit pretty、I、seriously. I think so. In Taiwan, even a lot of people are starting to turn to like delivery services, staying the, at home. But the thing is that did they think about it that people are cooking it? Outside,、mm. other than your home, under your nose, you know,、mm-hmm. in other kitchens. Well, I have to tell you that there's a very low risk of、uh, getting it from putting the food in your mouth. Right. So you get more of a risk by putting your hands on something that's infected and touching your face. Right. Yeah, and rubbing so, your nose and eyes. Yeah, and you know, I I talk to doctors and clinics, small clinics, and because you know, I went to get my allergy prescription, and then a doctor's like, you know, has your business got affected by this? I'm like, of course, you know,、mm. because usually press conference events is like group people, right?、Mm-hmm. So all the events are like moved back now. So we, things that were in February now are in March. Right, things in March, maybe in April. So everything is pushed back. And then I said, well, you know, everybody is affected, but probably not you.、Mm. And he's like, no, they got affected too. Doctors, because nobody wants to go. Nobody wants to go unless they have serious, you know, concerns. And then the other thing is like everybody's wearing masks,、mm. so less people is getting allergy and getting、That's、good and catching flus. That's good. Hopefully、yeah. there'll be a, a little dip in flu cases this season、right. as well.、Mm-hmm. All right, we're gonna go into a song called Noodle, and this is in the Hakka dialect, and it's by 
Xie Yi Qi. And when we come back、mm. in just a moment, we're going to tell you the origins of Wuhan style hot, dry noodles. We are back on our first course in today's Feast Meets West, and we're talking about the most well known food from the Chinese city of Wuhan. It is called hot, dry noodles, ru gan mian. I really never thought that ru gan mian was from Wuhan. No? You know, Wuhan is such a outreach town and city in China. Uh-huh. It's like you don't really think that anything came from there. <laughs> Nonsense. There's 11 million people in Wuhan. Really? It is a transportation、uh, nexus in Hubei province.、Mm. Um, so I saw this little thing floating around social media, and this is what got me curious about this hot, dry noodles.、Mm-hmm. It's this little image that people were sending around, a little cartoon, and you can see a bowl of hot, dry noodles in a bed at a hospital. And there's a nurse or a doctor looking at、um, the bowl of noodles. And then outside the window, you see all of the other Chinese delicacies from different provinces and cities. And they all have masks on and they're holding up signs that say, Jia yo, or、mm. good luck, or we hope you, we wish you well.、Um, so that got me wondering, like, what are these noodles? Like, apparently, it's something really famous.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, so we dug into the history. Which is about、uh, 80 years、wow. of history. Okay. It is popular in breakfast food. Yes.、Mm-hmm. They also serve it in night markets in Wuhan from、mm-hmm. carts. And this is fun. In 2013, People's Daily called it one of the top five noodles of China.、Mm. So basically, the noodle is mixed with sesame oil, cooked in boiling water, then cooked. A second time before serving, covered with sauce, pickled vegetables, spring onion, chili oil, fresh coriander. Yeah, like cilantro.、Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there are different、uh, versions of the origin story, but the、uh, one that I see that seems to be most popular is back in the 1920s, there was a noodle stand operated by a guy called Li Bao in Hankou.、Mm-hmm. And one particularly hot day, he had a lot of leftover fresh noodles. So he decided to cook them so that they wouldn't go bad and he could still serve them the next day. 
but when he scooped them out of the hot water and was going to let them cool down, he accidentally dumped sesame oil onto the noodles. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, man, I screwed up my noodles. But then the next day, he decided to cook them anyway. Uh, he cooked them a second time and added shallots and other condiments and then just sold them like that. And the smell of the sesame oil just permeated. It came out of his little stall. And these noodles became really popular when people said, so what are your noodles called? He said, hot dry noodles wow which seems like kind of a basic name right exactly maybe you know on top of his mind he can't think of anything he's he's just staring at this hot dry noodles he's like well that's what it is i know (laughs) he could have called it sesame noodles i mean so many different things he could have said but he was a simple man he was a simple man thanks to liba we now have this dish okay Second course. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ellen Chu, can you smell that? I can smell it. We are back on the second course of today's Feast Meets West, and we have a beautiful bowl of mian. so hot, dry noodles. The thing is that the trick of the trade is that you really have to allow all the noodles to soak up all the sauces before mm-hmm. you can eat it. I can smell that sesame. So, she, so she's like, pull the noodle high up. Okay. And then try to get soak all up the juices. All the juices in the noodle. Okay, okay this is Shao okay. Man's voice. All right. She's going to keep scooping and it's going to keep taking noodles into my bowl. (laughs) I like you, Ellen Chu, but not that much. (laughs) We have two little hawks coming in, joining us here, eating our noodles. Did you just call your children hogs? Yeah, hawks. Oh, hawks. Circling overhead. Circling overhead, waiting for their noodles to be served in front of them. Okay. And we also have this spicy... A little bit of chili oil, several different kinds of pepper, Uh, it's got uh, sesame, it's got um, chili peppers, it's also got the kind of numbing peppers like Sichuan style peppers, dried peppers, and uh, so we pour a little bit of that on the top and Ellen Chu is going to town. And what do you say Ellen Chu? This is so good. This is so good. You know, the mm. consistency, actually the, mm. the sauce, you know, it's thick, mm. but not too thick. Okay. Mm. The noodles are nice and coarse so that the sauce has kind of adhered to the outside of the noodles. And just a little bit of spiciness and the sesame flavor. It's and so peanuts. nutty. There is peanut in there. You don't know Yes, there is like peanuts in there. And crunchy peanuts. Crunchy peanuts, you know. So you like the peanut butter with some crunch in there. Mm. Then you will like this. Mm. It's a savory, savory sauce. How's the noodle? What do you guys think? Yum. It's good. Ah, it's super good. Super good from Ryan and yum from Brianna. It's yummy. Huh? I think we've got some winners over here. I think it's like four thumbs up. 
Yeah. yeah, at least. I might give it two thumbs up just myself. I know. Oh, I, maybe I have my thumbs and my toes up. I think so. Right. This, is the, this is the most sesame flavor I think I've ever tasted in any dish ever. I think so, too. Mm. Xiaomen is bringing, she's got a big bag of sesame seeds. Oh, wow. She took the sesame seeds, which have been toasted, and then she, like, squeezed it and, like, made it into a powder. And now I smell the sesame flavor. Okay. It, it has a toasting flavor, right? And you don't smell it until you, like, actually crush it up. Right. It's inside. It's just like coffee beans. Yeah. The reason why they have the sesames here in the store for people to smell is so that they can prove it's not an artificial flavoring, it's the real deal, and they actually press it with their own very expensive mm -hmm. cold-pressed machine into a sauce. They make sure that they grind the seeds in the store because they don't want it uh, going through other people's hands, so they wouldn't have additives or, you know, they wouldn't put, like, flavorings in there to make it, you know, pungent or, mm. you know, flavorful. So they want to make sure all the quality sesame is pure. So delicious. You can taste the flavor of those sesame seeds. Yes. I can just, you know, go to sleep now, and in my dreams, sesame seeds will be floating in my head. <laughs> oh, wow. And the dishes keep coming. Look at Ryan's face. Oh, I want to take a picture of that. So they have just uh, brought us another dish of noodles. This could be a, like the never-ending day of many noodles. We're going to be back in just a moment to talk with the owners of this restaurant and hear the story about how they learned to cook the noodles in Wuhan. But first, a song in the Taiwanese dialect called A Bowl of Noodles by Lin Junji. Much more to come when the feast continues. <laughs> You're listening to Feast Meets West. Third course. 
right, we're back in the third course on today's Feast Meets West. We are at a restaurant called Xiao Huo Ban. Right. We are now with the owners of this restaurant, Xiao Cai. And Xiao Man. And we realized that, oh, okay, the reason they have this dish is because one of them is from Hubei. Oh, so maybe we can have Xiao Man tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So Xiaoman actually brought three of her Taiwanese friends to have uh, noodles in Hubei. And breakfast noodles. That's right, which right. is very unusual. We don't usually have noodles for breakfast, I don't Right. Think. And she said that her friends, you know, people in Taiwan, we love to have mian, which is kind of sesame noodles. Right. But then her friends really thought that the sesame noodles or these hot, dry noodles in Wuhan are much more flavorful. In a way that, that you can smell it. Yeah. yeah. Why is it? Turns out that sesame is one of the most expensive uh, types of grain that is sold in China. And she says that the the original uh, hot dry noodle stores, they use very high quality of sesame. And it has to do with the whole baking process, the toasting right. process. So the toasting process, actually, uh, whether the temperature control and the time, it has to be exactly to a point where the sesame is not only tasty, but also it has that pungent smell mm. that brings out the flavor mm. of the noodle itself. Mm-hmm. So interesting, because I was asking, you know, how the Taiwanese, you know, sesame noodle, you know, the, the paste, mm-hmm. how come it doesn't have that pungent, flavor, flavorful smell? She said because of the quality, and some of the sesame sauces or paste that we use, they blend like yellow bean. Soybean powder. Soybean powder. That's in right. There. So the way you make it is you have to do, cook it first and then you uh, grind it up. Uh-huh. And so sometimes the, uh, the sellers will put that uh, additional ingredients into right. the powder so, so it's they, not as fresh. They needed to find someone to especially bake it for them. It's almost like uh, roasting coffee beans. You really have to check the climate, you have to check the temperature on the day. She said that the the master that they learned this skills from Mm -hmm. in Hubei showed her like how to how to do it and so they could replicate that process here in Taiwan. Right, because I guess you know the process takes the sesame to the point that it's almost kind of like, you know, close to burning. Close to burning. But not there. Right. But Up it to the has edge. that, you know, crispy taste to it. The bitterness. You know, it's just like I yeah. like my toast. Yeah. You know, with a little bit of burning on the edge. That's right. You know, not too much. If it's too much, then, you know, it might not be good for you. It needs to be browned. Browned, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I'm curious to know, like, if people are curious when they see it on the menu, because it has the word, the name Wuhan in it, if that has raised any questions from people. Recently. Recently, after right. the outbreak of the virus. Right. 
有啊，最近比较多说把名字换一换。<笑><笑>最近都很敏感，很敏感。So people say maybe they should change the name。我的都会开玩笑说，呃，老板你要把名字换一换。我说没关系没关系，就是让大家知道热干面真的，嗯。然后有客人点的话，我就会说，哇，你还有勇气哦。<笑> so they joke about it and they say if somebody orders the noodles, then they're all like, you're so brave to order them. Anybody with sense would think that you know this is just the name of the noodles made here, right?、Mm-hmm. So it's no problem. I wonder if there are any secrets to making、uh, this kind of noodles. She's not going to tell you her secrets. 有没有什么就是 pet ball 做武汉热干面一定要用碱水面，就你要要粗，就是它的面的特色本本身的表面啊要做的就是能够粗糙，的面心的话一定要有一根面心。They actually have uh, another uh, noodle master who makes their noodles for them according to what they their specifications,、mm-hmm. and they also use wheat, of course,、mm-hmm. um, and then they try to make it as springy as possible, as al dente、right. as possible, and、um, they they want them to be a little bit more coarse. So、um, even so that they will after suck up the soaking、juice. up, sucking up all the juices, that you know the noodle doesn't get soggy. So they use an alkaline water、right. uh, to create the noodles. I'm curious why they use that、um, to create the noodles. 呃，第一个它比较 Q， 然后呢，它它的味道会比较跟那个芝麻酱哈会比较贴合一点。The alkaline water makes it springier, right, chewier. Right. So try it in your baking course next time, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you want it in a, in a pie. <laughs> yeah. But.、No. Apparently, they said that using this also,、um, they tried to use regular noodles, and it just didn't taste the same. No.、Yeah. Xiao、mm-hmm. Cai, you actually went to Wuhan to learn how to do this. Tell us a little bit about the process of what it was like to learn it. 那我师傅他是凌晨两点，他就开始要准备擀面。对他，所以我们就会像我就是，我他要开着车啊，然后带我去。去制面厂拿面回来以后就开始擀面，我们要先把面给松开。I have to paint a picture because this would have been winter time in Hubei, so it would have been very cold,、right. zero degrees or even colder. And he would get up at two o'clock in the morning. It's two a.m. They already they are already preparing the noodles. He goes to the market, buys the noodles with the master.、Right. They bring it there, and then they have to cook the noodles first,、mm-hmm. and then they cool them down, let let them cool off. 我师傅他很特别，他是有一台小车车，可以骑到那个学校门口去卖给学生。大陆的学生，因为大陆的学生他们也是六点半要进学校，五点五十。啊，对对对，是五点五十要进去里面。对。And by 4 a.m. they're already standing at the front gates of the school,、right. the junior high school. Because the junior high school they need to be in school before 5:50. A.M. A.M. <laughs> A.M. So these kids are just kind of like you know zombies. You know, and they they don't get there until like 5:30, right. right? They get there at 5:30, and then it's like a big mad rush. 20 minutes.、Yeah. Kids grabbing at the noodles, throwing their money in. They cost anywhere between three renminbi to eight renminbi, which is less than a dollar. Right. U.S. Right. That's incredible. How long did you、uh, study this? 总共学两个多月。Two months. 对，但是我师傅说找他学是最棒的，因为他是分两次，因为他卖给学生是算一次，然后我们六点多回到店里面卖到中午十二点，算第二次。The master encouraged him to come early in the morning because then he would get to make noodles twice a day. Right. Because after they do the school rush, then they go back to the restaurant, the regular place, and then they sell it. 
until lunchtime. But you know, now doing all the calculation, I think he has a better life than his master. I think so. I think so too. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. After uh, two months, they became pretty good friends, uh, drinking uh, strong Chinese alcohol as you know after and having he, class. And the master kept no secret. Mm -hmm. He gave him all his you know trick of the trade. And then again, that was because he you know is from Taiwan, so he wasn't mm -hmm. going to open a shop up next door. Right. No competition. No competition. But he was saying how difficult it is. They would sell between 500 and 600 bowls of this a day. Right. But you were calculating per bowl was only like 20 NT. So it's hard to make that so, money. You know, it's only like like less with, than a dollar, like 50 cents US per bowl. hours you put in, you know, with all the work you put in mm -hmm. and all the coldness and the morning that you need to stay up. That's man, a lot. That's a lot. Well, I have to say, I'm very grateful that I'm able to have these uh, hot dry noodles here made by Xiao Tai, yes. directly learned from the master in Hubei. Right, right. Me what too. a treat. I know. Mm. So we don't have to wake up that early in the morning, okay? <laughs> and we're able to have it for lunch. Mm. Well, thank you so much to Xiao Tai and Xiao Man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank now, before we left the restaurant, I wanted to just ask Xiaoman how her family is doing in Hubei province. She said they don't live in the city of Wuhan. They actually live in other cities or in the countryside. Her mom lives in a farming village, and the people are fewer and more spread out. They've been at home ever since Lunar New Year's Eve in late January. Shaman says they grow vegetables next to their place, so they have plenty of cabbage, turnips, and other veggies. They also grow celery. The villagers will often raise chickens before the New Year holiday, so they all had chickens, but they didn't have pork because of swine flu. They had geese, fish, and plenty of food for the New Year, so they're doing okay. Her aunt, on the other hand, lives in the city, and they don't stock up on food like people in the village do. She said every household can call up the grocery store once a week, and there's a limit on orders of 100 renminbi or less. That's about $14 U.S. They uh, get information about the food that's available and the variety and the price, and then they order it and they just send it to you. So what's her family doing while they're all stuck at home? <laughs> she said they're catching up on TV shows and re-watching old shows because there's not a whole lot of new ones out. Of course, we wish Shaman's family all the best. Right, so people are afraid of going to Asian restaurant or anything correlated to Wuhan. They are afraid. But I guess, you know, don't forget, there are some yummy dishes from Wuhan too. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Right? And there are businesses that need your support. Just, mm -hmm. you know, wash your hands. Exactly. Uh, keep safe in other ways, but continue to support those local Asian restaurants. Right, because they live in the same area as you do. So let's give our addresses, P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Email us at androo at rti.org.tw. Next Saturday on The Face, we're going to be eating some savory Taiwanese pies for Pie Day. Wow, Taiwanese yes. pie. Yes. Okay. But before we go, one final song. What is this? This is by Zhang Heyi, and this is called, like the name of the restaurant, Guo Ban. All right, so partners, 
partners. So the restaurant that we just visited is called Partners. Alrighty, for Peace with Us, I'm Andrew Ryan. And this is Ellen Ju, well, your partner. That's right. We'll see you next week, partner. Bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.